This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. On day one, I will revoke Joe Biden's cruel policies on so-called gender-affirming care. Ridiculous. A process that includes giving kids puberty blockers, mutating their physical appearance, and ultimately performing surgery on minor children. Can you believe this? I will sign a new executive order instructing every federal agency to cease all programs that promote the concept of sex and gender transition at any age. I will then ask Congress to permanently stop federal taxpayer dollars from being used to promote or pay for these procedures and pass a law prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states. It'll go very quickly. I will declare that any hospital or healthcare provider that participates in the chemical or physical mutilation of minor youth will no longer meet federal health and safety standards for Medicaid and Medicare and will be terminated from the program immediately. Furthermore, I will support the creation of a private right of action for victims to sue doctors who have unforgivably performed these procedures on minor children. You just got a taste of what to expect from Donald Trump on day one of his presidency if he's able to get elected in 2024. And I, for one, will be fighting with everything to stop that from happening because he's very clearly going headfirst into the culture war since this is what's popular because Ron DeSantis popularized these culture war issues. And it's deeply dangerous because what he's saying, you can tell that he doesn't actually care about this issue, but he has to throw red meat to the base. But what he's saying is based on bad science, misinformation, it's explicitly discriminatory and downright dangerous as well. So let's talk about some of these things that he brought up here, puberty blockers being one of them. So these Republicans who talk about how dangerous puberty blockers are for trans youth, they completely pretend as if puberty blockers weren't already being prescribed to cis kids. Because believe it or not, that is the thing that happens. As Vice News explains, puberty blockers have been used for decades in cisgender kids who either are going through puberty too early or in some instances, kids who are going through puberty very quickly. Jason Klein, a pediatric endocrinologist and assistant director of the Transgender Youth Health Program at Hassenfield Children's Hospital in NYU Langone, told Vice, Quote, their use has been FDA approved, well studied, well documented, and well tolerated for a long time now. And it's the exact same medication that we use in trans or non-binary children to basically put a pause on pubertal development. Exactly the same medications at exactly the same doses. Now, the reason why puberty blockers have been prescribed to cis kids is because if you have puberty too early, that can cause long-term problems into adulthood. It can affect your height 
and your bones. So this is why doctors have been prescribing puberty blockers to cis kids. But Republicans only have a problem with it when it's being prescribed to trans kids. And that's not me just strawmanning them. So in this same article, I'll link to it down below, Vice News looked at more than a dozen puberty blocker bans proposed by Republicans, and every single one of them, as they were written when they looked at this article, or when they looked at them from this article, every single one of them carves out exceptions for cisgender kids. Same medicine, same effect, but only trans kids can't have them. I wonder why that is. Now, when it comes to genital mutilation, Trump thinks that gender-affirming care means that we just mutilate the genitals of children. That's not true for one, but if he actually cared, wouldn't he focus on the alarming rate of male infant circumcisions? It's more than 50% since 2010, and when it comes to intersex infants born with ambiguous genitalia, well, why isn't he addressing that? Because that is indeed an issue. As PRISM reports, most intersex surgeries are performed on children younger than two years old. These medically unnecessary procedures are done to align children's genitalia and reproductive anatomy with gendered social expectations, creating lifelong harms such as scarring, chronic pain, chronic incontinence, loss of sexual sensation, sterilization, inaccurate gender assignment, and trauma, according to the National Health Law Program, an organization that works to protect and advance the health rights of low-income and underserved people. So for a very long time, intersex people just being born with ambiguous genitalia had surgeries conducted on them before the age of two, also that way they can align with societal heteronormative standards. But Trump isn't saying anything about that, and it's because... This is just about demonizing trans people. Now, gender-affirming care, when it comes to younger trans kids, that just includes social transition, a name change, new pronouns, different clothing. And when it comes to older kids, teenagers, that includes puberty blockers, and it also includes hormone replacement therapy. But that's only if they have persistent gender dysphoria. So it's not like you can just declare yourself trans and go to the doctor and transition and get the surgeries immediately. I mean, if you're a trans adult, you can't even do that, first of all, because um, it takes years of treatments and working with the doctor to confirm that you do indeed have gender dysphoria. But even if you qualify for bottom surgery, for example, as an adult, it's extremely cost prohibitive. So Republicans are using their ignorance to enact laws that are deadly, that are going to harm people, that will increase the rate of suicidality. Now, contrary to popular belief, trans youth, this isn't like some trend that they're hopping on. A long-term study conducted over five years found that out of 317 trans kids between the ages of three and 12, only 2.5% of them reverted back to the gender that they were assigned at birth. And of the 2.5% referenced in that study, we don't know if these kids just changed their mind or they were bullied and social stigma made them revert back to the gender that they were assigned at birth because when it comes to trans adults, many of them who end up detransitioning do so because of social stigma. 
Now, not only is it not a trend, but it's also medically necessary. LGBTQ Nation explains, contrary to Trump's statement, there is growing evidence that providing gender-affirming healthcare to young people improves their mental health. Gender-affirming care for adolescents and adults has been endorsed by the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychiatric Association, and many other professional groups as necessary and frequently life-saving for transgender individuals. Such care for young people rarely involves surgical intervention. And to the extent that surgical intervention is involved, that usually refers to top surgery for trans boys when they're older teenagers. But that's the key here. This is medically necessary, life-saving care. That is gender-affirming care. So by stopping something that is life-saving, you are killing these people. You are killing children. But Trump doesn't care because he thinks that this is a new phenomenon that just happened over the course of the last couple of years. And as president, he's going to stop it from happening. He's going to end it. My Department of Education will inform states and school districts that if any teacher or school official suggests to a child that they could be trapped in the wrong body, they will be faced with severe consequences, including potential civil rights violations for sex discrimination and the elimination of federal funding. As part of our new credentialing body for teachers, we will promote positive education about the nuclear family, the roles of mothers and fathers, and celebrating rather than erasing the things that make men and women different and unique. I will ask Congress to pass a bill establishing that the only genders recognized by the United States government are male and female, and they are assigned at birth. The bill will also make clear that Title IX prohibits men from participating in women's sports, and we will protect the rights of parents from being forced to allow their minor child to assume a gender which is new and an identity without the parent's consent. The identity will not be new, and it will not be without parental consent. No serious country should be telling its children that they were born with the wrong gender, a concept that was never heard of in all of human history. Nobody's ever heard of this, what's happening today. It was all when the radical left invented it just a few years ago. Under my leadership, this madness will end. Thank you very much. That ranged from incoherent to genocidal, and either way, it was deeply disturbing. So for him to incorrectly state that this is a new phenomenon that just popped up two years ago and that he's going to end it. That's genocidal. That is genocidal. And no, trans people have not just popped up into existence over the course of the last couple of years. They just have more visibility now. And because you were ignorant doesn't mean that they weren't always around. But he's going to end it. That rhetoric right there should give everyone pause because it is deeply dangerous. Now, let's try to parse out what he says with respect to parental rights here. He says, quote, we will protect the rights of parents being forced to allow their minor child to assume a gender which is new and an identity without their parents' consent. The identity will not be new and will not be without parental consent. Um, it's really hard to figure out what he's talking about here, but essentially what I think he's trying to say is that, you know, if a child goes to their teacher and says, I'm experiencing gender dysphoria, or I think that I may be a girl or a boy, 
that teacher is not allowed to tell that child that they're trans because that's stripping consent away from the parent and they have to be able to consent to their child being trans. Now he says this, but simultaneously, he also wants to revoke consent away from parents by banning gender affirming care. So which is it? Do you want parents to be able to consent to what their child can and can't receive with regard to care? Or do you want to take that away? It's incoherent, but causing chaos is part of this project because more chaos leads to confusion. It leads to doctors being more precautious and a little bit more reluctant to prescribe gender affirming care to trans youth. And it's all part of his plot to try to erase trans people out of existence. Now, when it comes to uh, men participating in women's sports, what he referred to was adults, but most of these bans proposed at the state level refer to high school girls. And almost every single one of them involve cases where the lawmakers don't even know of one example where a trans child has caused a disturbance in their high school. In an AP analysis from 2021, Republican legislators in 20 different states proposed these bans, but none of them could cite a single example of a trans girl causing a disruption at her school. Now in 2022, a 13-year-old trans girl in Kentucky helped recruit enough players to form a field hockey team at her middle school only to be subsequently banned from playing on the team that she literally helped to create. Again, the team would not exist without her. She's the one who convinced her friends to play in this sport. And it's not like they weren't aware of this, right? That this ban would affect one child, one known trans athlete. They actually heard her testimony and they still thought, yeah, we still wanna ban you from the team that you helped to create. Do you understand it? Like, this is just about cruelty. But focusing on kids is a Trojan horse currently because that to them is what is socially acceptable. Their ultimate goal is to ban adults from transitioning as well because they want to erase trans people from existence. And we're starting to see that now. For example, Oklahoma has proposed a ban on trans people up until the age of 26, forcing many people in that state to detransition. And one Republican even admitted that this was their long-term goal. As Emma Viglin pointed out via Twitter, here's a Republican activist admitting that the long-term goal behind anti-trans bills attacking gender-affirming care for minors is to eliminate transition care for adults. The hand-wringing about the children is just a useful wedge for broader bigotry. And here's what the article that she referenced states. And Mr. Schilling of the American Principles Project confirmed that his organization's long-term goal was to eliminate transition care. The initial focus on children, he said, was a matter of going where the consensus is. So this is how these things always pan out. They create a moral panic based on, think of the kids, and then from there, they go on to try to discriminate against adults. But in the case of trans people, we're not just talking about typical discrimination where they want to restrict your civil rights. We're talking about them literally trying to erase trans people out of existence, forcing them to detransition. This is extremely cruel, and they know that this would lead to an increase in suicidality and more deaths but they don't care. This is what they want because they don't want trans people to exist. We heard Trump say it. He's going to end all of this because it's a new thing. This is tantamount to an attempted genocide and people have got to wake up. So, you know, here's the thing that I want to say here. Republicans have made it their mission to erase trans people out of existence. They're all in lockstep on this particular issue. And I have my criticisms of the Democratic Party.
But with that being said, anyone who tries to equate these two parties is being purposefully disingenuous. Because yes, the Democratic Party is too capitalist, too overly corporatist, but they're not trying to wage an all-out genocide against trans people. Can I say that they should fight more? Yes. Are they overly ambivalent? Do some of them not even care? Absolutely. I think that that's fair. But that is much more preferable to a party that is literally trying to erase an entire group of people out of existence. So anyone who says that there's no differences between these two parties, I mean, this issue makes it crystal clear. One party wants genocide against trans people. The other party, at worst, just doesn't care. I mean, it really is a case of this is trans people fighting for their lives. So anyone who perpetuates this false equivalence needs to be called out because obscuring the differences between these two parties is causing real harm. We cannot let these fascists get anywhere near power. And I will be fighting tooth and nail to stop Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whatever fascist the GOP base decides to choose in 2024, because this isn't just about, you know, um, choosing the difference between the lesser of two evils. It's about trying to keep trans people alive in an environment that has become incredibly hostile towards their existence. Time. No pressure. Everything looks so more clear. Yeah. To make this day even more special, since you're about to graduate high school and go to college, we wanted to give you $50,000 to put towards college. I didn't even think this was real. Like I'm waiting to wake up. <laughs> oh my god. You just watched a snippet of a new video published by the biggest YouTuber on the planet, Mr. Beast. And in this video, he basically cures 1,000 people of blindness by paying for a simple 10-minute surgery for all of them. And this video, in my opinion, is really important because perhaps for the first time ever, Mr. Beast doesn't just help people in need purely for entertainment purposes. He either wittingly or unwittingly also forces his viewers to question the system itself that allows for this type of unnecessary suffering in the first place. And I think that this video in particular sparked a level of curiosity, even in Mr. Beast, that I haven't seen before, that none of us have seen before. But first, here's some additional details about the video. As CNN reports, Jeff Levinson, an ophthalmologist and surgeon, worked with Donaldson, that's Jimmy, Mr. Beast, to perform the first round of surgeries in Jacksonville, Florida. Levinson has coordinated the Gift of Sight program for over 20 years, which provides free cataract surgery for uninsured patients who are legally blind due to cataracts. Half of all blindness in the world is people who need a 10-minute surgery, Levinson says in the video, referring to the cataract removal surgery. And that statistic was mentioned in the video multiple times, which I think is really significant because it primes viewers to think deeper about the entire system, the system that perpetuates this level of unnecessary cruelty. And it gets viewers to wonder why, if the government has the power and the financial ability to end this suffering like that, why would they not? Why allow this suffering to go on 
when you have the power to end it? And this is a question that Mr. Beast himself asked via Twitter, writing, I don't understand why curable blindness is a thing. Why don't governments step in and help? Even if you're thinking purely from a financial standpoint, it's hard to see how they don't get a return on investment on taxes from people being able to work again. And the fact that this experience of curing 1,000 people of blindness got Jimmy to ask this question is, I think, really important because what he's saying here makes perfect sense to the average individual. It seems puzzling, but there is an answer, believe it or not, and we'll get to that. But first, more from CNN about how Jimmy was able to pull this off. They started by calling homeless shelters and free clinics to create a list of patients in the Jacksonville area who needed cataract surgery but could not afford it. Eventually, they had a group of 40 patients and Levinson performed all of their surgeries in a single day, starting at 7 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m. Levinson said that patients were in disbelief that somebody would actually seek them out to rescue them from blindness and then have the kindness and generosity of spirit to offer the surgery. Now, the ophthalmologist who worked with Mr. Beast ended up connecting him with a nonprofit organization called C International, which is how he was able to broaden the scope of this effort and conduct surgeries for a thousand people in countries ranging from Mexico to Honduras to Indonesia and, of course, the United States as well. So overall, love him or hate him, what Mr. Beast did here was use his wealth for good. He cured 1,000 people of blindness, and that is an objectively good thing. However, what's important to keep in mind is that these good deeds shouldn't only be done if and only if wealthy people come along and cure these people. We have systems in place that in theory are supposed to be taking care of their populations, but that's not happening. And this video itself kind of forced viewers to ask themselves, why? I think it really triggered a level of introspection that we haven't seen from other Mr. Beast videos. So why don't governments intervene here? Well, let's go back to Mr. Beast's question. Why wouldn't governments cure people of blindness despite the financial cost since they'll eventually, in theory, be able to make that money back in the first place? Doesn't it make sense to just cure people if you can? And the answer is an unequivocal yes, but we don't live in a system that functions in that way. And the answer to Jimmy's question, quite simply, is capitalism. That's why, because capitalism. Under our capitalist system, the priority of government isn't to serve its people. The goal is to foster an economy that allows private corporations to endlessly increase their profits year after year. And this is why universal school lunch programs expire while tax cuts for corporations become permanent. Because politicians don't serve us. They serve corporations almost exclusively. But don't take my word for it. A 2014 Princeton University study by political scientists, Drs. Gillens and Page, found that when it comes to policy outcomes, economic elites and interest groups disproportionately get what they want, whereas working class people, whatever they want, whatever they desire, well, those bills never become law. But why is that the case? Well, because each election is getting more and more expensive. The 2020 election cost more than 14 billion dollars yes that's billion with a b which is double the cost of the last presidential election in 2016 but if you're wondering why well it's because elites and corporations are spending more and more money to help elect politicians that they know will do their bidding and how do we know that these politicians will in fact do the bidding of these large multinational corporations who contribute to their campaigns well let's put it this way if a friend paid a million dollars to help you get the job of your dreams would you not be eternally grateful to your friend? Would you not pick up the phone every single time that they called you? Would you not do any favor that you possibly could for that friend who helped you out? 
Of course you wouldn't because you're a human being and that's just part of human nature. And politicians like us are human beings who understand that they want to help the people who helped them. Now, you may be thinking, wait, doesn't this kind of sound like a system of bribery? And you'd be correct to come to that conclusion. But this is all legal thanks to Supreme Court cases that opened the door to the commodification of U.S. elections, starting with Buckley v. Vallejo back in 1974 and getting even worse in the 2010s with cases like Citizens United in 2010 and McCutcheon in 2014. So that's why our government doesn't care about what we want. It's composed of politicians almost exclusively who only serve these corporations. So with that in mind, it becomes much more clearer as to why our government wouldn't intervene and help people, doesn't it? Because Mr. Beast is right. Not only would the government save money by just paying for the health care of these people who need it, but they'd also save lives. So Jimmy's question makes sense. A Yale study published in 2020 found that transitioning the U.S. to a single-payer healthcare system would actually save an estimated $450 billion each year, with the average American family seeing $2,400 in annual savings. The research was published in the medical journal The Lancet, and it also found that Medicare for All would prevent about 68,000 unnecessary deaths per year. And the researchers believe that that number is actually conservative because they didn't factor in uninsured people. And furthermore, that study was conducted before the pandemic. So the number of lives that free healthcare would save is likely much, much higher now. So if there's money and lives to be saved, why not do it? It makes sense, right? Well, it goes back to who our government represents and what its purpose is. If the government provided free health care to its citizens, then health insurance companies wouldn't be able to rake in billions of dollars in profits each year. So the government lets these bloodsuckers exist and they convince us that their services are necessary, but they're only really necessary insofar as the system itself stays the same. And these health insurance companies spend millions of dollars on lobbying and campaign contributions, all to maintain the status quo and make sure that we don't have a system that makes more sense. In fact, Goldman Sachs notoriously questioned whether or not curing patients was a sustainable business model. Yes, you heard that correctly, because curing patients, believe it or not, isn't the priority of these corporations. Maximizing profits is. Corporations are amoral meaning they don't have ethics like you and I. So they don't make decisions based on morality or who does and doesn't need help. Their behavior is dictated exclusively by money and how to make more of it. And politicians, it's not like they're ignorant to these perverse incentives that exist. They just simply look the other way so long as these same corporations continue to contribute to their campaigns. It's kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch my back situation. So the problem, Mr. Beast, is capitalism. Capitalism is like a virus and its goal is to commodify every single aspect of our lives and squeeze as much money out of us as they possibly can. And I understand why some people feel turned off by Mr. Beast's content, because rather than turning prisons into a YouTube challenge, Mr. Beast could shine a light on the American prison industrial complex and address the profit motives behind mass incarceration. He could have addressed the growing housing crisis in this video where he gave an unhoused person a home. But we have to meet people where they are. And I think that Mr. Beast probably hasn't done these things in his videos. He hasn't asked these questions in his videos because he probably hasn't thought about these systemic solutions because Mr. Beast, like most Americans, is a capitalist. And I kind of feel like we're all brainwashed 
into the system. We're all products of our environment. So we by default are capitalists until a particular event or situation gets us to rethink the system. And it seems as if this video where Mr. Beast easily cured a thousand people is kind of getting him to be a little bit more introspective about the system that he once perhaps didn't question. But the fact is, he is, maybe for the first time, thinking holistically, which is really encouraging to see since his reach is absolutely massive. And if he uses his platform to educate his young audience about all of the ways that the system is failing us, then that is a massive, massive net good for society. Now, even though I understand the leftist critique of Mr. Beast's content, understand there's always been this genre of YouTube where creators shove cameras in people's faces and they watch them react as they give them money or leave a really large tip. I remember enjoying Mr. Shy's City giveaway videos where he would give dozens of people $20 bills and that would go massively viral. And even though it feels a little bit gross and even exploitative to monetize good deeds like this. I mean, in a capitalist system, there's a profit motive in everything if you just look hard enough and get creative enough. Now, I'm not assuming that these creators are creating this type of content for cynical reasons, but perseverance porn is very popular because it makes us feel good temporarily. But perseverance porn becomes a problem if it gets us to shut down our brains and not think about the systems that created these negative outcomes in the first place at the individual level. So what really matters ultimately is if these good deeds facilitate dialogue and get young viewers to be curious about the system that subjects people to unnecessary suffering that can be cured as easy as Jimmy just cured it. And I think that this video from Mr. Beast was different because it did get people to think deeper about this subject that he was covering. Mr. Beast himself is asking questions about this barbaric system that we live in. So I think that's a good thing. I, I look forward to him enlightening himself further, and I hope that he finds a way to educate his young audience about these serious issues, because if he can, Mr. Beast can be more than just an entertainer. He can actually be an educator and a huge force for good that educates millions of people potentially about the barbarity of capitalism. But it all starts with just a little bit of curiosity. And to see this from Mr. Beast was uh, really good. So I commend him for this video. And I hope that he continues to ask questions about this system. And I hope that his viewers do too. I feel like this notion that Elon Musk is some principal defender of the First Amendment is so laughable that it's pointless to even bring it up and address in a serious way whether or not he genuinely cares about free speech. He doesn't. But for those of you who are still not convinced, there's a new article that confirms that not only is he against free speech, but he is very pro-censorship specifically for individuals who he doesn't like or who the far right tells him that he shouldn't like in this instance. As Insider explains, a leaked internal Twitter message appears to show that Elon Musk directly ordered staff to suspend a left-wing activist's account on the social media platform. Bloomberg said it viewed a screenshot of the message in question involving the account of Chad Loader, which read, Suspension, direct request from Elon Musk. Loader, who uses they-them pronouns, describes themselves on their Mastodon profile as a community activist, cybersecurity expert and citizen journalist. Their investigation into the U.S. Capitol riot on January 6th led to the arrest of a masked member of the far-right Proud Boys organization who'd attacked police officers, The Intercept reported. Now, let's recall why the right was so angry with Twitter prior to Elon Musk buying it. They claimed that conservatives were unfairly targeted. But now we have this situation where there's evidence that the left is being unfairly targeted 
and the so-called free speech warriors are nowhere to be found because this was never actually about free speech even though they complained under the pretense of free speech being violated this is about their team scoring one over on everyone else so ask yourself why would elon musk ban these left-wing accounts and specifically it's because fascists told him which anti-fascist accounts that he should censor in a november 24th interaction with far-right accounts such as andy no and others elon musk told them to report antifa accounts directly to him that they believed were in violation of twitter's terms of use and that resulted in multiple unjustified bans of left-wing accounts because he did indeed take their advice as the intercept explains no had previously tried and failed to have loader suspended from twitter and also joined a botched attempt to have a court order the researcher to stop tweeting about one of the proud boys who took part in the capitol riot what i believe happened is that i and other accounts have been mass reported for the last few weeks by a dedicated group of far-right extremists who want to erase archived evidence of their past misdeeds and to neutralize our ability to expose them in the future loader said what i suspect happened is that twitter's automatic systems flagged my account for some reason and no human being is reviewing these but fast forward to today and we now know that Chad Loader was banned specifically because Elon Musk ordered it. So let that sink in. The owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, is taking advice on who should and shouldn't be banned specifically from fascists. And it's interesting that the fascists, for some reason, have an interest in getting rid of all of the accounts that report on their crimes. Pretty interesting right? And he's listening. That's what makes this especially troubling. Meanwhile, neo-Nazis like Nick Fuentes are being allowed back on the platform only to be banned almost immediately after returning because, I mean, obviously. So this was never about freedom of speech for Elon Musk. And I feel really bad for anyone who actually thought that he genuinely cared about the First Amendment. His hypocrisy here has been honestly impressive because you'd expect him to at least be somewhat consistent given that he made free speech like one of his main priorities, at least ostensibly. But no, he hasn't even tried to be consistent here. Need I remind you that when news broke in April that he'd be buying Twitter, he tweeted out, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. But fast forward to November when he took over Twitter and he was literally firing Twitter employees who dared to criticize him. Also, remember how he announced that comedy was now legal on Twitter only to turn around and ban parody accounts who hurt his feelings? It's honestly comical, but none of this is surprising. Six years ago, he literally canceled a Tesla order of a journalist who criticized him. But you don't even have to go back that far. As More Perfect Union tweeted in April, Elon Musk fired pro-union Tesla workers and was disciplined by the National Labor Relations Board for violating workers' rights to organize. He silences workers in his factory every day, but we're sure he'd be a champion for free speech if he owned Twitter. Exactly, and they've been proven right, as has anyone else who pointed out that this individual doesn't care about freedom of speech. He's just saying that because he thinks that right-wingers who claim they're being targeted unfairly by Twitter will like that. So, yeah, Elon Musk is a fraud, but I feel like that's a statement that is so obvious. It's like saying the sky is blue. I feel like most people know it, and if they don't, then they're just rubes at this point like i don't know how to be more charitable than that if you don't see him for the fraud that he is then congratulations you're not very bright
there are places that go too far on either side. Can we agree with that? But I bet you most places in America, I mean, again, this is 2023. The people who are doing the teaching are of a generation that is not mostly interested in suppressing the past or being racist. I mean, have I disagree you, with that. Well, then you don't watch a lot of the videos that they themselves post. They themselves. Teachers and, and educators. Trust me, they're, they're hyper aware of race. If anything, it is injected too much into everything. But you sound like you're more in the uh, Hollywood woke camp, and I, I'm not that's saying fine. That. It doesn't all, mean we have to. No, like, it's like a, it's, it's a, a humanistic camp. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Brian Cranston, star of Breaking Bad, has been infected by the woke mind virus. Yeah, at least according to Bill Maher. Now, that exchange got relatively heated during Bill Maher's Club Random podcast. And I think that Brian Cranston, you can tell that his heart is in the right place and he means well, but he just doesn't necessarily know how to defend his position and combat the points that Bill Maher was making. And as a result, I think that Bill Maher kind of steamrolled him through this conversation, but the problem is that what Bill Maher is saying is the result of years of right-wing culture war nonsense that he fell for himself hook, line, and sinker. But nonetheless, let's watch the moment that escalated to Bill Maher essentially calling uh, Brian Cranston a member of woke Hollywood or whatever he said. It's time. It's 400 years that we've dealt with this oh. and our country still has not taken responsibility or accountability for what? For the history of the systemic racism that's in this country. What should we do more? Well, I mean, for, for one thing, uh, critical race theory. I think is essential to be teaching. It depends on what you mean by that. Well, I mean, I mean teaching how the race trade and and racism is systemic in everything we've done in in government in social uh, activities. Yes, it, it has been. I mean, it's 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 embedded in it. But if you but critical race theory can mean it's. I mean, it's just one of these catch-all terms. If you mean we should honestly teach our past, of course. If you mean more what the uh, 1619 book says, which is that. It's just the essence of America and that we are irredeemable. That's just wrong. It's not. Yeah. I mean, okay. yeah, right. I, I agree with that. But even even teaching our past and being honest and owning up to who we are as a country in the history. Of Most schools are doing that. I mean, I'm sure there are ones in Texas that are not. In Florida, they're, they're, they they want to do do away with critical race theory in a lot of other states because some because sometimes it veers off into things that are really not appropriate in schools so how do you govern you, that? if you're how telling you... five-year-olds that you're either an oppressor or someone who uh was uh, oppressed you're you're introducing ideas about race that are inappropriate for, for kids that age who can't understand okay, it. Okay, so common sense would govern Common sense that. is what's lacking in yeah, this country. You need That's why, but that is why people wind up passing laws about that. And yes, you're right, very often the laws go too far. But it's not coming out, it's not coming from nothing. It's coming from things that have started in colleges mm -hmm. and very far left woke thinking that 
uh, many people feel is not appropriate in schools. I mean, the same thing with, with gender stuff. You know, can they just be kids for a minute? Bef- right. Okay. And, and, and that's absolutely. And we have to find that time, that level of maturity when a, when a child can understand that at certain times in this country's history, there was a grave mistreatment of other human beings. I think we get that. Well, no, we don't get it. What oh, do you mean you get really? it? Really? You think that is not something that is now widely understood and agreed? Yeah, it's definitely not widely understood. That America has a, a sorry racist past? It's talked about and whispered, but they don't whispered. know Whispered? Yes. It's, you, it, what, what, the Jim Crow laws? So, but that's so Emancipation years Proclamation I, I in 1865. It was 1965 or in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed by LBJ. But, but this is 2023. It took a hundred years. I know, but is my point. Can we live in the year we're living in? So even though Bill Maher is a liberal, what I hear him, if I didn't know the context or know about his politics, I would just assume that he was some sort of a Fox News watching grandfather because he's basically parroting the same exact talking points that we hear from Fox News and individuals over at The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh. See, what right-wingers do is they take this one small anecdote, perhaps a TikTok of some blue-haired teacher saying something that is seemingly woke and going too far, and then they'll blow that up into a years-long nationwide witch hunt against woke teachers as if that one example is indicative of a broader trend, when in actuality, all of this is a red herring, and what Marr should be doing if he were savvy enough was rejecting the premise put forward by right-wingers. It's not that teachers are too woke, and we've gone too far in education where we're just trying to overcompensate for our nation's bad history. The problem, Bill, is that all of this is a distraction. The talk of critical race theory, gender studies, this was all concocted by the right to distract you from very serious issues. And the individual who has popularized critical race theory, Christopher Rufo, admitted that this is all nothing more than strategy. Back in 2021, he tweeted out, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. So it's a strategy and Bill Maher isn't smart enough to understand that and he doesn't know the game that's being played. So once you buy into the premise that the GOP is selling you, then it's easier to digest the other things that they say. So he broadened it out from critical race theory and teaching about history to, oh, well, Look at the gender studies. They're teaching kids about gender studies. When in actuality, what does that even mean? Do we have any examples of a teacher telling elementary school students that um, you can be transgender or non-binary? Even if that were happening, that wouldn't be bad because it's true. But the way that these conversations are taking place is at an age-appropriate level to where a teacher just says, Hi kids, you may have known me as this, now I'm known as this, my pronouns are this. And that to Bill Maher, if that were to go viral, is just further evidence that the left has gone too far. I mean, I, I just, you have to understand that all of this is a distraction. The culture war nonsense is a distraction that the GOP is put, putting forward. It's like a squirrel moment. They, they don't want you to look over here and how elites are exploiting you and how workers are 
you know, exploited by their employers. They want you to focus on these things that they tell you to focus on. And like the rube that he is, Bill Maher has uh, fallen for it. When in actuality, you have to reject the premise because what they're selling you is nonsense, okay? Kids are not being indoctrinated into woke education systems. And critical race theory is not being taught at the elementary school level. Critical race theory is a legal theory. It's an offshoot of critical theory. And I, for one, didn't even encounter critical race theory until I was in a PhD program. But what the right has done, as explained by Christopher Rufo, is take that label and attach it to anything that they don't like. And that's how they win the culture war. It's been highly effective. And Bill Maher doesn't understand that. So for Brian Cranston to say, well, they should teach critical race theory, even he inadvertently has fallen for right-wing propaganda because this isn't necessarily something that's being taught at a wide scale. Sure, you can find anecdotes, but broadly speaking, this is not necessarily something that is being taught. So even in a defensive position, you can see how one can be duped by the right-wing culture war, but I won't you know, fault Brian Cranston because his heart is in the right place. Critical race theory is not this thing that's being taught at elementary schools, but I have one more clip to show you where it kind of devolves into Bill Maher just typically shooting on the left. It seems like they, they feel like the, the worse I think things are, the better person I am. That's what I get from a lot of the left, you know? I think things are worse than you do, so that's what makes me good. And like, I just want the reality. See, to me, this is the difference between liberalism and wokeism. Liberalism is about lifting people up. Woke is just about self-loathing and hating yourself and scolding everybody uh, and virtue signaling. It doesn't actually help anybody. Lifting people up who have gotten a bad shake in this country, who are for some reason downtrodden or have been cheated, Absolutely. I've always been for that. Have you now, Bill? Well, when the left proposes things to lift people up, like Medicare for all, you call us purity testers and tell us to fall in line and support the Democratic Party uncritically. And when we're trying to make the pitch for these types of programs, well, we oftentimes bring up how underserved communities, black and brown people, would benefit disproportionately from free health care. And this is to kind of pitch it to the Democratic Party, where they themselves, I think you could probably characterize as more woke in the sense that they cynically weaponize identity politics to distract from the real issues that their donors don't want us to talk about. But when we bring in that angle, we're still woke. So you can't be nuanced. You can't talk about any issues. Like, there's no winning for Bill Maher. He's just already determined that the left is persona non grata. So he doesn't like us regardless of what we say. But it's funny that he says, oh, the left is just overly negative and they just, they don't want to ever recognize the good. It's really easy for him to say that in his position of privilege as a multimillionaire. But by pointing that out, I would be woke, according to Bill Maher. Now, he also says here that liberalism is about lifting people up. Wokeism is about self-loathing, as if wokeism is some <laughs> defined ideology. Wokeism is an ill-defined concept that was hijacked by the right, and any and everything that they don't like, by their definition, is woke. So, if we bring up healthcare and how nobody should die if they can't afford health insurance, well, they just say healthcare has gone woke. This is what they do. And Bill Maher doesn't understand that he is falling for their nonsense. He buys into the caricature that the right 
is portraying the left as. And the fact that Bill Maher even believes that wokeism is such a huge issue in this country is evidence that the right's branding exercise and culture war has worked. And rather than like bringing on leftists onto his podcasts to talk to real leftists and see what they want, he'd rather just accept the portrayal from the right and just dismiss them as woke when that's really um, not smart if you want to have a fleshed out political ideology and understand why people say the things that they're saying. It's not because they're overly woke and they want to be language police. It's all a ruse and Bill Maher has fallen for it. And that's what irritated me about this conversation. So at this point in time, Donald Trump is the only declared presidential candidate on the Republican side. And he's already threatened by a number of individuals when Polls show he really shouldn't be, but still, he is preemptively taking shots at potential candidates, namely Ron DeSantis, or as he would call him, Ron DeSanctimonious, which is a terrible name. But nonetheless, in an interview with AP, he said this about DeSantis, quote, if he runs, that's fine. I'm way up in the polls, Trump said. He's going to have to do what he wants to do, but he may run. I do think it would be a great act of disloyalty because, you know, I got him in. He had no chance. His political life was over. He also attacked DeSantis for trying to rewrite history with respect to his COVID-19 policies and claims that Florida, contrary to popular belief, was actually closed for a long period of time towards the beginning of the pandemic. So he's trying to delegitimize Ron DeSantis little by little. He's planting these seeds and it does seem to be working because this boost that DeSantis had after Trump was wounded following the election, it kind of seems like it's over. It seems like Trump has rebounded. Now, Ron DeSantis is going to have to make a decision. Is he going to allow these attacks to continue or is he going to respond? At some point, he's got to respond if he wants to run because he's got to kind of save face. And he did respond. So he was asked about these attacks during a news conference. And here's what he said. When you're an elected executive, you have to make all kinds of decisions. You got to steer that ship. And the good thing is, is that the people are able to render a judgment on that, whether they reelect you or not, DeSantis said. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win reelection, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate it has in the history of the state of Florida. He added, we won by the largest raw vote margin over 1.5 million votes than any governor candidate has ever had in Florida history. Yeah. So honestly, the more that Ron DeSantis speaks, the less convinced I become that he actually is capable of defeating Donald Trump in a GOP primary, because I want that to happen. I want DeSantis to beat Donald Trump, not because I prefer De DeSantis over Trump. In fact, I think that DeSantis is far more dangerous than Donald Trump, but I want to see Trump run as a third party candidate in the event he does lose to Ron DeSantis in a GOP primary. But DeSantis is making my dream of seeing that less likely because he's just not equipped to beat Donald Trump. I mean, sure, you can say that He's done a number of things to kind of set himself apart from Donald Trump. Namely, he outflanked Trump from the right with regard to COVID-19 vaccines, and he's very anti-vax. He wants you to know that. But aside from that, how else has he differentiated himself from Donald Trump? And the answer is he really hasn't. Even in his response to Trump, he's bragging about his numbers in a very Trumpian fashion. But I don't think he realizes you're not going to out-Trump Donald Trump. But he thinks that he can be, I guess, the heir to Trump's throne 
and out Trump Trump. It's just not going to go well if that is indeed his strategy and he really needs to set himself apart. But thus far, he's failed to do that. Now, he is trying to, I guess, appear as a sort of mini Trump. And I say that because when you look at the mannerisms, he's just directly trying to emulate Donald Trump. And it's so pathetic. But look at this video put together by The Recount. It's evident that he really wants people to think of a certain politician when he speaks. Everybody here would do it. Project to get Judges are a priority. For, and honestly, we have businesses that have been locked down and lives destroyed for over a year based to say many, many no COVID vaccine passports made in China and shipped and here. Why would we want so many important things Can we take them? to us be at the whim of they China? Uncanny. Now, I hate Trump's nickname of Ron de Sanctimonious for him, but... I've got to say that in his response to Donald Trump, he was pretty sanctimonious. Oh, well, I simply just can't fixate on these attacks from my opponents because uh, I I'm busy steering the ship. I'm the captain of this ship and Floridians rely on me to be a good governor. Bro, you're not a good governor. You're a terrible governor. What have you done to actually better the lives of people in Florida? He has been the country's biggest culture warrior, and he's been effective in that regard. But you're not actually doing a good job at looking out for the people of Florida. And I say this because people are literally dying in Florida because of his policy decisions. So take a look at this graph here. 2.6 million Floridians do not have health insurance. That's 12% of the state's total population. And that's higher than the national average of 8.6, which is still bad, but 12% is far worse. In fact, Florida is ranked 46 out of 50 when it comes to uninsured citizens. So why is it so bad in Florida? What can he do? Well, unilaterally, he can improve the lives of millions of Floridians by doing one thing, but he refuses to do it. The simple, straightforward reason so many Floridians have no health insurance is that its elected officials won't sign on to the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion, which offers states extra federal matching funds if they make the program available to everybody with incomes below or just above the poverty line. Most states have now done just that. It's the single biggest reason that the uninsured rate nationwide is at a record low, but 11 states have held out, leaving in place the much more limited eligibility standards they had established before the Affordable Care Act took effect. Florida is one of them. Childless adults in the Sunshine State can't get Medicaid unless they fall into a special eligibility category like having a disability. And even adults with kids have a hard time getting onto the program because the standard income guidelines are so low, about 30% of the poverty line, which last year worked out to less than $7,000 for a family of three. That's not enough to cover rent, food, and other essentials, let alone buy a health insurance policy. And again, Ron DeSantis can change this like that. All he has to do is put partisanship aside and expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, but he refuses to do that. So while he continues to try to build up his national name recognition, while he hyper fixates on supposed woke policies in education in Florida, Floridians are literally dying. So he has the audacity to posture as if he cares about the people of Florida and he just can't fixate on these attacks from Donald Trump because he's busy as the captain steering this ship. No, motherfucker, you're not fixating on anything but yourself. You're unserious. You're a clown. Now, Donald Trump is a clown, too, but Ron DeSantis is actually trying to position himself as a more serious alternative to Donald Trump. And in some ways, I think that he probably is going to be more effective than Donald Trump in the event he were to get into the White House. But still, 
everything that we see with regard to his politics has been political theater. But yet he wants you to look away at all of these culture war things that he's done. Sure, you may be winning the culture war, but that comes at the expense of the lives of people in your state who you refuse to help all because you're a partisan hack. So that's who Ron DeSantis is in this fight between him and Donald Trump. Unfortunately, I'm backing the lesser of two evils in this instance, which is Donald Trump. Now, again, I hope that DeSantis defeats Donald Trump in the GOP primary. That seems unlikely, but I just want to see Donald Trump burn the whole ship down with him if he runs as a third party candidate. But it just seems like he's not doing enough to differentiate himself from Donald Trump. He's just copying Donald Trump and failing to do that. And as a result, he's just going to go down in flames. But we'll just have to wait and see either way. I can't fucking stand Ron DeSantis, and I think that that's pretty evident based on what I've said about him. He's just so insufferable, so whiny, so smarmy, and he just he doesn't have that authentic anti-establishment appeal that Donald Trump has. He's not an outsider. DeSantis wants to have this facade that he's an outsider, but in actuality, he's one of the biggest insiders in the game. Last year, Governor Gavin Newsom of California signed the Fast Food Recovery Act into law. And as a leftist, I have my criticisms of Gavin Newsom, but he absolutely gets credit where it's due because this is by far one of the most pro-worker pieces of legislation signed into law this generation. And I say that because the 550,000 fast food workers in California for the first time ever would actually be given a seat at the table. We're talking about real power to determine the courses of their lives. The Los Angeles Times reported back in August, the centerpiece of Assembly Bill 257, dubbed the Fast Food Recovery Act, is the creation of a state fast food council with the authority to establish standards for wages, working hours, and conditions. The council would set aside seats for business and worker representatives. So needless to say, this is a game changer because this exploitative dynamic between employers and employees is being fundamentally reshaped as a result of this law. So of course, the fast food industry vehemently opposed it, but that's predictable, right? And they were able to lobby to an extent to get the bill watered down, but by the time it was signed into law, it was still incredibly powerful legislation. Now, one of the first things that the fast food industry anticipates this council to do is raise the minimum wage from $15.50 an hour to $22 an hour. And at face value, you're probably thinking, man, that's, that seems like a really large jump. But believe it or not, the Center for Economic and Policy Research reports that wages would actually be at $26 an hour if they kept up with productivity. And a $22 an hour wage amounts to an annual salary of just under $46,000 per year, assuming that you work 40 hours per week. So that's pretty reasonable if you ask me, considering how much profit their labor produces for these fast food restaurants. But California's fast food industry refuses to accept this law, and they scored a massive victory late last year, and they now have this law on the ropes. USA Today reported the following on December 30th. A group won a temporary restraining order to stop California's plan to implement a law on January 1st that could, among other things, raise the industry's minimum wage to $22 an hour. Save Local Restaurants filed a lawsuit on Thursday saying California couldn't enact AB 257 or the FAST Act, also known as the Fast Food Recovery Act, as planned after the group on December 5th submitted a petition signed by more than 1 million Californians to put 
support the measure on the ballot in November of 2024. Save Local Restaurants includes International Franchise Association, the National Restaurant Association, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. So putting this up to a vote in 2024 gives them more than enough time to run a robust propaganda campaign to drive down support and ultimately get low information voters to vote against their own self-interest and just so you know this effort was supported by companies like mcdonald's chipotle and in and out now this propaganda campaign will probably be effective because as you know fear is a powerful tool for elites and i'm assuming that they'll talk about how this will cost jobs drive up prices lead to workers being replaced by robots but understand these are all things that corporations would do anyway so long as they think they'll be able to get away with it but one argument that caught my eye that i didn't necessarily expect was uh the argument from mcdonald's president joe erlinger because he essentially says that this law was undemocratic and he wants you to think of the poor multi-millionaire franchise owners who this is going to hurt on january 25th mcdonald's corporate released a lengthy open letter to california lawmakers written by erlinger where he literally calls california's law autocratic insider reports the president of mcdonald's usa threw shade at california lawmakers for passing a fast food law that he said would make it all but impossible to run small business restaurants in the state joe erlinger said in a january 25th open letter a majority of McDonald's nearly 14,000 restaurants in the United States are run by franchisees with hundreds of stores operating in California. The open letter was titled, California keeps looking for ways to raise prices, drive away more businesses, and destroy growth through bad policy and bad politics. The state is teaching us a powerful lesson about what our future could look like if this one-sided style of democracy is mimicked elsewhere or goes unchecked in the Golden State, said Erlinger, a native of California. There are big important issues that need the attention of lawmakers. Implementing costly and job-destroying legislation like AB 257 is not the answer. Yes, because Californian lawmakers should be focusing on the real issues, which doesn't include worker rights. Interesting argument there. So I need you to understand this clown is seriously arguing that California passing legislation that evens the playing field between employers and employees is undemocratic. And on top of that, he wants you to feel guilty for the small business owners that this autocratic law will affect, namely the McDonald's franchise owners. Now, look, let me be very clear here. McDonald's franchise owners are not small business owners. Visa Franchise reports that the average median net sales of McDonald's franchises in the United States is $2.9 million annually. And franchise owners can make their initial investment into the franchise back in less than 10 years with a 10% profit margin. And let's talk about the initial investment of $1.8 million that's required to even start a McDonald's franchise in the first place. I mean, in order to secure a business loan for that much money, that requires good credit, liquidity, and resources that normal Americans simply don't have access to. So forgive me for not feeling sorry for these small business franchise owners who expect workers to live in poverty while they produce higher profits year after year after year for entitled franchise owners who sit on their asses and expect their wealth to grow endlessly while complaining about paying workers who made them successful in the first place livable wages. No, I'm sorry, but fuck off. If your franchise can't afford livable wages, then your franchise doesn't deserve to exist. Or maybe get off your ass and flip burgers yourself to reduce the cost of labor. But I mean, I don't want to offend the downtrodden franchise owners of McDonald's. I could never forgive myself if I were to punch down 
on these poor souls who are struggling with their multi-million dollar per year franchise. I mean, the argument here, it's so dumb, it almost makes my head explode. And what makes that comment from Erlinger even more insulting is that he's bemoaning a $46,000 annual salary while he rakes in millions of dollars. Insider reports, according to financial disclosures, Erlinger made about $7.4 million in salary, stock options, and other compensation from McDonald's in 2021. The latest year complete compensation history is available. $7.4 million in a single year. If Erlinger worked 40 hours per week and was paid hourly, he'd be making well over $3,500 per hour. But yet the prospect of his workers making $22 an hour, it just makes him apoplectic. It sends him into a rage and he goes full Karen and writes a strongly worded letter to California's autocratic lawmakers. I mean, the audacity of this man. Now, if you're feeling angry, just imagine how the employees in California must feel. Insider reports that fast food workers across California have planned strikes to protest employer support for this referendum. This includes strikes at McDonald's and other fast food restaurants. So these strikes are likely going to continue throughout the year because these fast food companies aren't going to back down and they will be trying to get Californians to overturn this law. But one thing that you can do to stand in solidarity with these fast food workers is never ever cross the picket line. Support them when they're striking, and that's the bare minimum. But as for Erlinger, well, I'm not buying the guilt trips for these franchise owners, and I absolutely don't think that one of the most democratic pieces of legislation with respect to working place conditions is autocratic. I mean, he's basically gaslighting all of us with the things that he's saying, and what's sad is that most Californians might buy his argument because, believe it or not, propaganda works, and these fast food corporations are going to spend lots of money to make sure that Californi Californians vote against this. So if you live in California, start organizing right now because there's going to be a massive effort to overturn this, and we need this to stick because we don't want this to just apply to California. We want this to initiate a domino effect where other states see how successful this law is and they adopt similar laws. Is there any scenario in which you feel it is okay to lie? No, I don't think lying is excusable ever, period, right? There's no circumstance, especially if you're legislating for the American people right now. So what I might have done during the campaign does not reflect what is being done in the office. History has shown that the American people can pretty much forgive anything. But that starts with a sincere apology normally, a lot of remorse shown. Prevailing opinion is you have not yet shown that. You know, I I don't know what you mean by that because I have well, shown- Well, you, you seem angry. You seem angry. I'm not angry. angry. I, not angry at all. I'm- Are you sorry? I've been, I've said I was sorry many times. I've behaved as if I'm sorry. Look, if, if you're, if you want to compare uh, emotions, people show emotions differently. I am sorry. I'm deeply sorry. I've, I fielded calls. I've been calling supporters to apologize directly to them for that. And, you know, I don't know what, what is asked of me right now when you ask oh, you have not shown remorse or you don't seem to look sorry. I don't know what looking sorry 
looks like to you, Caitlin. It looks like you resigning, George. But yet, he still refuses to take real accountability. Now, he did recuse himself from his committee assignments, but I think that he knows that that alone is insufficient. A Siena College poll found that 78% of his constituents want him to resign. But it's cool. He said sorry. All is forgiven. I don't think that it works that way. Maybe when you're like a preschooler, kindergarten, perhaps, although that's pushing it, that's sufficient. But when you are a member of Congress who lied to get into Congress, who lied to your constituents, and the overwhelming majority of them want you to resign, that is what real accountability looks like. And with a straight face, he honestly said these words. I don't think lying is excusable ever, period. Excuse me? What did you just say? You don't think you don't think that lying is excusable ever, period. You are George Santos. So I think that we're beyond that portion of this whole scandal. You should just own up to the fact that you are a compulsive liar and say, yes, I did lie. And while I think lying is wrong, perhaps I have a problem telling the truth. It's just part of my nature. I'm really working on myself. But all of this comes off as so disingenuous and unsurprisingly so because it's George Santos, again, perhaps the biggest liar in the United States. Now, um, the part that really uh, stood out to me was when the OAN host said, uh, you seem angry. And he said, I'm not angry at all. Like, it was so awkward, so cringe-inducing that... <laughs> I, I felt like I wanted to jump out of my own skin, but more from this interview, because believe it or not, it gets better. What would you say, George, that you would have done differently? I wouldn't have lied about the education. Is that it? Is there anything else you can think of that you regret lying about? I <laughs> what do you even say about him? He doesn't understand the problem. You're still doing it, George. You're still lying. But now you're lying about lying. So there's just, he, he can't help himself. Again, he's a compulsive liar. And it's like word vomit. He has to be deceitful. He has to be disingenuous. Now, in this next clip, he's going to, believe it or not, seriously try to portray himself as the victim, which to me is just hilarious. But nonetheless, let's hear him out. People should be judged on their actions and not by trial by fire through the media, which is what I've experienced for the last couple of weeks. Um, as you noted in your opening, you, you said that uh, politicians have broken the fabric of trust with the American people, but that trust has been broken through betrayal in elections when they campaign on certain issues. And when they go into their offices, they behave and act and vote and deliver completely opposite of what they promised during the electoral process. So that's more so what I believe you're re referencing to and to what the American people has learned to feel de deception on. Well, the business of politics is, is littered at the highest levels with deceit, mistruth, corruption, of course. and this is kind of the time that you're now entering politics. So with that climate in mind, um, I guess, where do you want to start? And your, your story, your, your upbringing, maybe? Okay, we don't need to see his response there. It's just very banal. I just wanted you to see the unintentionally hilarious way that the OAN host worded that question. You know, we're at a time where politics is at the height of deceit, mistruths, corruption, and it's also the same time that you're entering politics. So, um... 
<clears throat> that's you. <laughs> like, I don't know if she intended for that to be funny, but the way that she had that serious look on her face as she low-key dissed him was genuinely hilarious. So good job to that OAN journalist. I never thought that I would say this, but when you're like comparing a piece of shit to a mountain of shit, you can see the differences. You can smell that there is a difference between these two things. Now, he basically makes it seem as if he's the victim because people should be judged for their actions. Now you might question, well, isn't that what the media is doing? They're judging you for your actions. Oh, no, no, no. What he means is that actions are different from words. So if you do something physically, you punch someone, that's bad, but lying, I mean, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, so it doesn't matter. Brother, I need you to understand that to lie is to take an action. You are an adult, you are not a child, so to lie is no different than taking an action. So by calling out your lies and holding you accountable, you are being judged by the media for your actions. I mean, he's trying to differentiate between actions and uh, lies, physical actions, non-physical actions, tomato, tomato. I mean, he's just, he's such a weasel. And that became abundantly clear 10 seconds into this interview. Now, he uh, contends that other politicians, they've also broken the trust because uh, the trust of the people, because, quote, when they campaign on certain issues and when they go into their offices, they behave and act and vote and deliver completely opposite of what they promised during the electoral process. So maybe he lied about himself, but other politicians, they lie about priorities specifically the priorities and promises that they make to their constituents. So which one is really worse in your opinion? Both. Both are bad. But we're not just talking about, you know, a politician pledging to support a particular policy so they can lock down some constituent group. Because yes, politicians lie all the time, hence why people don't trust politicians. But what you did is so much worse than that and he's trying to portray himself as some principled warrior for the policy positions that he ran on he made these promises to his constituents and even though he lied to them well he's going to go to congress and he's gonna do what he set out to do except you don't really have an agenda i looked at his policy platform and it's like literally seven or eight paragraphs you ready for it inflation bad crime bad taxes bad energy independence good we should do things to better prepare for the pandemic but nothing specific that's it that's the extent of the policies that he ran on but he's trying to make it seem as if you know he came into congress with a mission and he had these goals and priorities and he's not leaving until he finishes the job you represent nothing you're hollow you're corny you have no ideas you don't have a coherent political ideology it's just mm, liberals bad lefty is bad and i want more power that's it like that's the extent of your politics so for him to pretend as if he cares about like some deeper cause which is why he ran for congress it's an insult to the intelligence of his constituents further because you're still lying because we can see through you and realize that it's all bullshit now to lie about you know attending baruch college and being a star volleyball player is one thing that's silly that's that's weird but it's another thing to lie on forms because that means that you are a fraud and you broke the law and good face actual time 
in jail. And there's more and more evidence that he did indeed break the law. Mother Jones reports, last week, Mother Jones reported that more than a dozen top donors to Representative George Santos's first congressional campaign did not appear to exist. The donations from people whose names or addresses could not be confirmed totaled more than $30,000. This pattern of questionable contributions Mother Jones has learned extends to Santos' successful campaign last year. According to Santos' campaign filings with the Federal Election Commission, his recent campaign pulled in more than $45,000 from relatives who lived in Queens. This included a mail handler who gave more than $4,000, a painter who donated a maximum of $5,800, and a student who also contributed $5,800. One of Santos' relatives, who was recorded as giving $5,800, says that they did not make any donation to Santos. On Tuesday, a Mother Jones reporter visited the Queens' home of this relative, informed that two donations of $2,900 each were listed under this person's name and address in Santos' campaign finance reports. The relative who asked not to be identified said, I'm dumbfounded. The relative had no idea where the money for these donations came from and remarked, it's all news to me. The person added, I don't have that money to throw around. So he's so brazen that he's using his own relative's names, something that you can easily check. And even they are shocked by him. It's just, this story is so weird, and I honestly can't wait to watch the movie for it. But that is a different level of lie, because that is something that can get you into a world of trouble. It is illegal to lie on campaign finance forms. You cannot submit a contribution under a false name, but the Justice Department has asked the Federal Election Commission to pause enforcement of any laws that he may have broke while they conduct their own parallel criminal investigation into other areas where he may have committed fraud. So it's just a mess, and needless to say, he is in serious trouble. And even now, when we know everything there is to know about him, he's still dishonest because fundamentally that's who he is he is a liar he is a deceitful person to his core and i i would argue that perhaps it's even innate at this point like he might not be able to help himself he might literally have to lie because it's like a compulsion or something i, I don't know but either way he's a complete clown and if he genuinely wanted to be accountable he would resign but he's not going to do that because again he cares about one thing and one thing only his personal power so here we are Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.